I love when God's kind providence lines things up so nicely as reading Exodus 2 as we're coming to the closing of Galatians. Perhaps no better way to summarize the book of Galatians than God has remembered his covenant to Abraham. Would you please stand out of reverence for God's word as we read today from Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. Please give careful attention uh, to this reading of God's word. Again, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch of yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the living and active Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. Imagine yourself in this scenario. You just boarded an airplane. You have a nice comfy room and a a good seat because you're one of those brave souls who sits in the the emergency exit, which I never do because it scares me. You're watching other people boarding the plane, and you see this, this mother carrying a toddler, and she's got a bag, and she's trying to go down the aisle and find her seat, but she's starting to get flustered, the child's crying, and you see that awkward balancing act where she's trying to get her bag up into the luggage area on top so she can get in her seat as fast as possible. She's embarrassed because the plane hasn't even started and she's already making a scene as she feels. Now, you're already seatbelted in. You want to help, but it's several rows up. But you see somebody behind her, and you think, well, surely this person will help. But instead, to your chagrin, this person just brushes by and mutters something about holding up the boarding process. You're angry about this. You think that that was a completely rude thing to do, and you're about to get up, but then you see somebody else come alongside, come behind and say, ignore that comment. It's very hard to fly with toddlers and help the woman into her seat and get the bag up. I ask you, which one of these passengers was a neighbor to this woman? Was it the person who was so concerned with the boarding process and with finding their own seat and not causing any more trouble? Or was it the person who entered into the embarrassment of this woman and helped her in her weakness and her struggle to get that bag up? Now, in thinking about situations like this, 
It's pretty easy for us to associate with the kind person sitting there and watching it happen and wanting to help, or with the even kinder person who lifts the bag for her. We don't want to associate with the person who brushes by, but if we're being honest, we all have had that bad day. In this hypothetical situation, the burden which this woman has, it's physical and it's emotional. She needed help lifting a bag and calming down her child. But it's, it's not hard for us to apply that as an analogy for how we are to spiritually care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to support our neighbors. When you see someone struggling in the midst of this life and are weighed down with the burden of sin... Is your reaction to brush by that person and disassociate from their embarrassing situation? When you see your brother and sister in Christ fall into sin or continue to struggle with a persistent sin, is your reaction one of annoyance and arrogance? I would never do that. Why can't they get it together? Year after year, we've talked about this. In other words, is your reaction to the sinner merely to reprimand them, or is it to restore them? Don't get me wrong. Sin needs to be confronted and corrected, but this needs to be done in the right way and for the right purpose. When you see someone burdened with sin, first and foremost, we need to be reminded that our own heart is full of sin. And in a spirit of gentleness, then, and humility, we are to help restore this brother or sister in Christ. What we'll see in this text today is a fine balance of what uh, the New Testament scholar John Barclay helpfully describes as mutual responsibility on one hand and personal accountability. Mutual responsibility and personal accountability. You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a mutual responsibility to care for one another, to bear the burdens of one another. Yet to do this rightly, all of us have to have personal accountability to look at our heart and examine it if we are doing things out of a desire to love God and to love our neighbor. What we'll see today is that the law of Christ is the love of Christ who took on our burdens and fulfilled the law for us, so that by His Spirit He might make a community of believers who love one another and bear each other's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ by the power of the Spirit. We're going to consider this passage under two very simple headings. First, we'll look at bearing burdens, verses 1-5. through And second, we will look at sowing seed, Verses 6 through 10. Bearing burdens and sowing seed. Let's look at that first point. Bearing burdens. In the previous chapter, Paul has delineated what he has described as the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. In both lists, as we noted when we looked at that passage, Paul focuses on the sins and the virtues which particularly affect life in the community how you live out your Christian life as brothers and sisters in the fellowship of the church. Paul has focused on those kind of sins and virtues. Whether that be negative ones, such as enmity, strife, fits of anger, jealousy, or positive ones, such as love, peace, kindness, patience. 
Through all of this, Paul has indicated to us, by way of mirror reading, that he is aware of a present strife and infighting among the Galatian churches. No doubt in connection, this is in connection with the issue of circumcision and submission to the law, as we have seen all throughout this book, that that was a problem in Galatia. Now Paul begins to apply his discussion of the the fruit of the Spirit to this specific pastoral situation in Galatia, the crisis that's happening with the infighting and the anger that is going on there. So he states in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, Paul steps back from his argument and addresses them directly as brothers and sisters. This is the typical way that he has done this in the letter. And he specifically seeks to address them regarding what to do if any one of them, any one of the people in the church, is caught in a sin or transgression. I actually think the ESV is helpfully ambiguous with that translation of caught. Because this verb can actually have two different senses. On the one hand, Paul could mean that they are caught in the act of a transgression by other, brother, by other believers. That they are caught in the act of sin, and now they are being confronted. On the other hand, it could be referring more to sin itself as ensnaring them, catching them by surprise, and so leading them to fall. I actually think that that latter sense of being ensnared is correct and makes better sense in the context. For Paul, immediate will will go on, as we read, what's he say? That watch yourself, lest you too fall into temptation. In other words, I don't think Paul is talking about a brother or sister in Christ who's kind of sneaking around and hiding their sin and are then caught. Rather, I think he's talking about a brother and sister in Christ who is sincerely trying to live out their faith in Christ, but through the weakness of the flesh, they have fallen into sin and temptation. And the question which Paul is dealing with is, what do we do in that case? How do we help a brother or sister who falls into sin and temptation through the weakness of the flesh? The answer that he gives is clear. He states that you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The first thing I want to say here is that the calling them those who are spiritual, Paul is not setting up and identifying a separate class of super saints. That is to say, Paul is not here identifying a division of believers in this church, those who are mature and spiritual and those who are immature and fleshly. No, I don't think that's the case at all. He is saying, rather, that you, who are Christians, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are united to Christ by faith, this is what you do in this situation when somebody who is united to Christ in faith falls into sin. You who are Christians, this is how you react in a situation. I think we see that this is the case in the very command that he gives. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That language of in a spirit of gentleness, it takes us right back to the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5, doesn't it? 
which one of which was gentleness. And as we talked about then, the fruit of the spirits aren't like the gifts of the spirit that we can say, "Oh, I'm a I'm a, not a gentle person, but I am a kind person." No, the fruit of the spirit are united, and this is something that should be manifested in one degree or another in every Christian. So when Paul tells them to act in a spirit of gentleness, he highlights the fact that he is talking to the whole community, those who are united to Christ and have received the Spirit of Christ. That you, who are, it's even better not to just say, those of you who are spiritual, but those of you who are spirit people, those of you who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This isn't some sort of uh, mysticism idea that they are some sort of super spiritual. No, it's people who are united to Christ and have received the Holy Spirit. Here then, Paul is telling them what gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit looks like in a concrete situation. If you've ever read the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and you wonder, yeah, but what's it look like? Kindness, goodness, gentleness? Well, Paul's saying this is exactly what it looks like to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like a gentle disposition towards a brother or sister in Christ who has fallen into sin, where you do not ridicule them or merely reprimand them, but rather, in love, you seek to restore them to the fellowship of the church through faith and repentance. That is what it looks like to manifest the gentleness that we have in Christ. Here Paul adds another reason for such gentleness. He warns them, to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, in confronting the sins of others, this is a dangerous situation for us to fall into sin and temptation as well. Confronting the sins of others opens us up to the sins of pride and anger, or even worse, perhaps, indifference. So part of that gentleness of the Spirit, Paul wants to say, includes a humility which states, there but by the grace of God go I. That is part of having a gentle and meek spirit through union with Christ. From this particular injunction, Paul states a more general command. He says in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This language of bearing one another's burdens, it calls us back to Galatians 5.13. And again, remember, these are all connected. This is one argument that Paul's making. We can't just take these latter ethical portions and separate them from the first five chapters of Galatians. But it, it calls us back to 5.13 particularly, where Paul said, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As we saw then, Christian freedom is to be expressed through offering the service of a slave to our brothers and sisters in Christ, out of a gratitude to God in Christ and through understanding that we are united together with them by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. One of the services of a slave is bearing the burdens of others. It's a pretty self-explanatory picture. A servant, a slave, is somebody who carries things for others, particularly things that you don't even own yourself. You are a slave. Bearing one another's burdens is the image that Paul gives us. Now, no doubt, 
this bearing of burdens involves what he's just been talking about. It includes bearing with the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ, in many cases with love covering a multitude of sins. But it also includes bearing with, coming alongside of, and helping to shoulder the spiritual, emotional, financial, and physical weaknesses of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything which is a burden in this life of sin and misery is something which we need to come alongside of those of us who are of the faith. It is through this freedom expressed in service that Paul says we fulfill the law of Christ. Herein we see that the law of Christ is the love of Christ. Christ who said that love fulfills the law, and Christ who loved us and gave himself for us as a curse, this same Christ who lives in us, empowers us by his Spirit, and he calls on us to emulate his loving service and service to his saints. The law of Christ is the love of Christ who gave himself for us and who works in us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. As the eminent late scholar Gordon Fee so eloquently puts it in speaking of Paul's ethics, he states this, God's glory is their purpose. The Holy Spirit is their power. Love is the principle and Christ is the pattern. For Christian ethics, we glorify God. That is our purpose. For Christian ethics, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Christian ethics, the principal driving force is love. And in Christian ethics, to know what love looks like, we look at the pattern of Christ Jesus. In other words, we love God because he first loved us. And that love is empowered by the Spirit and is patterned after the self-gift of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This is why Paul immediately adds, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. You know what thinking yourself to be something looks like? It looks like you think you are too good, too important to bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ, to offer the service of a slave to them in Christ. How can we sinful and lowly creatures, how can we think that we are too good for this kind of service? When we serve the Lord Jesus Christ who is infinitely worthy, glorious eternally, Yet for our sakes, he became poor, and he became a slave, and he died a death for us, even death on a cross. How can we think that we are something and not shoulder the burdens when Christ has shouldered all of our burdens for us? If you desire to be something, you must recognize that you are nothing. How we live in this life and how we will be judged for the life to come is on the basis of our faith in Christ. But that's a faith which evidences itself by a life that is patterned after Christ. A life of faith looks like a life which is following in steps, the patterns and practices of our Lord, albeit imperfectly. Those who have been saved through the cross, in other words, are those who will take up the cross 
and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that looks like bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters. So Paul states in verses 4 through 5, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In this verse, Paul is continuing his instruction on the, the focusing on and harshly judging the sins and failures of others. He is also warning them against boasting in the good works of others. Those who are of the Spirit, who, who restore those who have fallen in a spirit of gentleness, those who bear each other's burdens, are not to be evaluating themselves and their own behavior on the basis of how well others are doing or how not well others are doing. You see, Christ and his self-giving love are the standard by which we are measured. And that gives all of us great need for humility. We don't compare ourselves to others. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the pattern. And that brings us in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ because we need him. We need humility. Again, Paul grounds his, this admonition saying, for each will have to bear his own load. On the surface, you might be like, Paul, kind of sound like you're contradicting yourself. You've been talking about bearing each other's burdens, and now you're telling me that each one has to bear his own load. I can see how that might be confusing for some of us on uh, the first look at it, but actually I don't think Paul's contradicting himself at all. You see, what he's saying in, in this life, Right now, as we're living in the church, this is the time to bear the burdens of each other. But on that day of final judgment, when Christ comes, we are going to be responsible for how we responded to the grace of God. Did we, in meekness, in humility, bear the burdens of one another? We do that in this life, but in the life to come, in the judgment to come, we will have to stand responsible for whether or not we cared for God's people, whether or not we loved them in that way. On that day, it will not do to boast in the strength or weaknesses of others. For our boast can only be in the cross of Christ and His strength shown in our weakness. In these first five verses, we have come to see both aspects of relational responsibility and personal accountability, which we mentioned earlier. To the Galatians, Paul is calling on them to put aside party politics and to put aside strife and infighting. And as a community of believers, in gentleness, they are to seek to restore the sinner who has fallen in transgression and mutually bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ, which is the law of Christ. In the same way, Paul is calling on us in meekness and humility, the gentleness of spirit, the gentleness of Christ, to seek to restore those who are wayward among us. By the Spirit of Christ, to put on love, which is the bond of peace, as Paul will say in Colossians. That in response to Christ's lavish love which He pours upon us day after day, that in gratitude we would happily bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Because Christ bore our burdens in His body on the tree. We cannot respond to the gift of Christ in idleness or pride. Rather, we must keep in step with the Spirit. And so, according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Which brings us to our second and last point. We have just looked at bearing burdens. Now let us consider sowing seed in verses 6-10. through Paul begins this section of verses with another specific application. He states, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Many commentators at this point become confused and wonder why Paul put in this seemingly random statement. From their perspective, it doesn't fit the context. Perhaps you don't understand why Paul, in talking to the Galatians about bearing burdens and restoring a transgressor, now he's telling them that you need to pay your pastor. It is an interesting insertion, but actually, I don't think it's out of place at all. I think there's a very specific reason that Paul turns to this question. He followed his instruction on bearing burdens with one another because it's not just a sin issue of bearing burdens. It involves, as we talked about, their spiritual, their emotional, and their financial burdens as well. He's following this instruction of mutual responsibility with that of personal accountability, telling them that ultimately each one of them will be responsible for how they responded to God's grace. And he's turning now to a very specific application of that, to the principle of burden-bearing. So he says that those who are taught, that is the congregation, ought to share all good things with the one who teaches, that is the pastor. With Luther, I'll say that it's awkward to have to talk about such a thing as being paid from the congregation when I am paid from this congregation. But one of the things that you've called me for, the thing you've called me for, is proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And this is in the chapter right here. And it's something that God has to speak to us. You see, within the life of the church, the burden of teaching and preaching in supplying for the spiritual needs of the flock, this falls most heavily on the pastors. Because this is his calling. This is his burden. He has a spiritual burden for you. But with that comes a financial burden for him to be able to devote himself to the word and prayer. That's where the brothers and sisters in Christ of the congregation come alongside and they bear that financial burden and supply that need. And as brothers and sisters, they supply what's lacking in each other. Spiritual gifts material gifts as well. Notice that Paul says, share all good things. In this context, this refers to material things as reciprocity for receiving spiritual things. But this language of all good things, it also points back to the fruit of the Spirit. You remember that Paul said that one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. In other words, 
Paul is giving us a concrete example of what goodness as a fruit of the Spirit looks like. And that looks like depending on the Lord and in faith supplying for the Lord's servants, for your own spiritual good and edification. As Paul followed his command to the relational responsibility of burden-bearing with a call to personal accountability of examining your own works, so here he follows the call to share all good things with verse 7's note of personal accountability. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Paul used an analogy which would have been very familiar to the Greco-Roman world, uh, Jews and Gentiles. He's drawing on everyday agricultural life. Children, let me ask you, if you, a farmer plants a seed of corn, what should he expect is going to grow from that? Is it going to be wheat? Is it going to be barley? Is it going to be watermelons? No. He's going to produce corn. Because that's what corn seed is meant to produce. It's a natural, God-given process. And that's how it works. And Paul takes from this example of the farmer the same truth of our spiritual life. If we live according to the flesh and do the things which we know are displeasing to God, we are sowing fleshly seeds, which we must expect are going to bring about fleshly fruit or a fleshly harvest. In the same way, on the opposite side, if we live according to the Spirit... We are sowing spiritual seeds, which we should expect will produce a spiritual harvest. Now, by using this language of a field and saying that God is not mocked, Paul is drawing on very basic biblical language alluding to the judgment, the final judgment. Jesus would talk about fields and crops and harvests all the time in reference to both God's salvation and his judgment. Having brought up this topic, Paul goes on to expand the theme by switching the focus of the metaphor. Uh, He goes from focusing on the seeds to focusing on the soil. If you notice that transition in verse 8, where he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here, Paul directly connects his agricultural analogy with his discussion of the works of the flesh and of the fruit of the Spirit, which itself is an agricultural analogy as well. His point is clear. Fleshly seed sown in the soil of the flesh will naturally lead to a crop of corruption. The language of corruption... It refers to the destruction and decay which we all know a life of sin leads to, even in this life, but ultimately it points further to the final destruction, eternal death and hellfire. It's harsh language, but Paul is warning them that sowing to the flesh can only reap destruction. This is seen more clearly that it's talking about an eternal state with what Paul contrasts it with. For he says that the one who sows spiritual seeds in the Spirit will reap the harvest of eternal life. Yes, by faith, even now, we we taste the first fruits 
of that promise of eternal life. But we still wait for that, that return of Jesus and that resurrection and glorification and the enjoyment of the full harvest or the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Having just warned them not to be deceived, he now encourages them to fight against weariness, saying, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. As a farmer may and does grow weary in his labor in his field, yet he endures because he has the hope of a harvest. So too, Paul says, we must not grow weary, for we have the hope of a harvest which will take place in its proper season at the time which God has appointed. But the harvest set before us, it's not of corn, it's not of wheat, it's not of barley or watermelons or any of those good things of this life. What we have to look forward to, our hope which keeps us from weariness, is that we will have the harvest of eternal life and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. So Paul closes out this section and the main body of this letter saying in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, Paul's language of do good harkens back to goodness as a fruit of the Spirit. And here, he specifies that we are to do good to all, that is, believers and unbelievers. We have a responsibility to show that sort of love that even Christ showed to us that when we were enemies of God, he gave himself for us. We are to show a love for God and our neighbor. But he also adds that statement, but especially to the household of faith. As a man, a father, and a husband has a greater responsibility on him to love and care for his wife and children and provide for them than he does, say, for his next-door neighbor. And as children owe a greater love and respect to their parents and a love for their siblings than they do for just anybody else, so too, Paul is saying that since we are united to Christ and we are in the household of faith, we owe an especial goodness to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a greater responsibility which is on us because of our mutual interest in Christ. And don't do too quickly pass over what Paul calls the church. After all, he's been talking a lot about relational responsibility and personal accountability, which can make us feel kind of guilty. But the church is not called the household of works. It's called the household of faith. We are a people characterized by our faith in absolute dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Any good works which we have flow from that faith as a fruit of the Spirit. And even our greatest good works need to be washed with the blood of Christ and presented to the Father as acceptable in His sight. With this verse, though, Paul brings the discussion which he began in 5.13 to a close. There he had said, for freedom, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here he finishes by instructing the Galatians to do good to everybody, but especially 
to the household of faith. You see, the gospel which Paul preaches is not lawless, for it brings about the fulfillment of the law of Christ, which is the love of Christ, and which is manifested, manifests the power and the pattern of the love of Christ in the community of the saints. In this passage, Paul gives to the Galatians and to us both warning and promise. Let us neither be deceived, and so do the flesh, nor let us grow weary in doing good. For we have the sure hope that, as God's set time, we will reap a harvest of eternal life. In this life, we can be deceived into sin, but we can also grow weary of doing good. And we need to watch out for both of these things. And Christ will supply all of our needs in this. As we've seen, this passage of Scripture, it's intricately connected with Paul's discussion of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. As this section directly follows that discussion and makes direct application, pastoral application, to the situation going on in Galatia. As I reminded us in the discussion of the fruit of the Spirit, we must not isolate this part of Galatians as if it's its own random ethical teachings, which Paul just threw in at the end. Rather, we need to understand that these admonitions are given with very intentional uh, application in the context of Galatians. And we need to remember, too, that all that Paul has taught us about faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through union with Christ, is our salvation. This, ta- this discussion is flowing right from that. We're not talking about earning eternal life in terms of earning our salvation. We're talking about what our life looks like in gratitude to God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, how we should walk in gratitude. In this, this text today helps us see this connection throughout the whole book. In chapter 5, Paul indicated that the Galatian church was struggling with strife and infighting, so much so that he compares them, you remember, to a pack of wild animals which is starting to bite and devour each other. Through the context of the letter as a whole, we know that the divisions and dissensions which were going on were because of the very specific issues of whether or not they should be circumcised and submit to the law as necessary for their salvation. Moreover, from the broader context, and as we'll see in our next sermon, there were false teachers who were insinuating that Paul's gospel was lawless and that it could not regulate ethical behavior. Paul has responded to them by saying that that is not the case. Paul has responded by showing that in the gospel, the true fulfillment of the law is brought about through the law of Christ, which is the love of Christ who gave himself for us and works within us. He who fulfilled the law for us in his perfect life and his atoning death is the same one who gives us his spirit and fulfills that law in us day by day as he helps us to grow in grace and to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and to bear their burdens following in the pattern of our Savior. If the Galatians truly want to understand the law and its fulfillment, they must look to Christ in faith. And the same is true for us. The same one who calls on us to restore the transgressor and a spirit of gentleness is the same one who said, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, upon, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, 
And listen to this. For I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same one who calls on us to take on that yoke and bear the burdens of one another is the same one who has borne our griefs and our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Moreover, He is the great sower who went out to sow. He sends forth the seed of His Word as He's even doing now through the preaching and the reading of His Word. And He sends out that seed and He causes it to grow. If you're hearing the Word of God now, if you're hearing that you need to repent of your sins, but that Christ is a Savior, He's planting that seed in your heart. And I would call on you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and receive that rest for your soul. Let none of us be deceived. Let none of us grow weary. Rather, let us consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that we may not grow weary. As the household of faith, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. For the joy set before us, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Let us look to the eternal life which is coming. Let us bear one another's burdens as the household of faith, with the Holy Spirit working in us, the love of Christ, the love of Christ which saves our souls. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you so loved the world that you sent forth your only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How thankful we are, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, although you were rich, became poor, so that through your poverty we might become the riches of God. How thankful we are, Holy Spirit, that you are poured forth into our hearts and you cause us to cry out, Abba, Father, and that you work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Our triune God, we fail in many ways to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love our neighbors as we ought. But we thank you for the fruit that you do show. And we ask that you would sanctify us, that, Lord Jesus, you would present our feeble works to the Father as pleasing in His sight because these are what He has ordained beforehand for us to walk in. I pray that you would have none of us think that we can earn our salvation, but that we would look to Christ in faith and that we would trust in Him as a perfect and complete Savior and that out of gratitude then we would seek to serve Christ by serving His people. We ask all of this In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen and exalted King, amen.